from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I am Jeremy Goodwin. The St. Louis Kaplan-Feldman Holocaust Museum had been closed for about two years, while the Jewish Federation of St. Louis invested $19 million into a much-expanded, and dare I say improved, museum. It opens at a time of rising anti-Semitism in the United States. So how do curators urge visitors to learn the history of the Holocaust, while also looking at how hate and bigotry manifest today? Joining me to talk about that is Helen Turner. She's the museum's director of education. Helen Turner, welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, Helen. And I had the chance to visit with you last week and, and walk through the museum. And you're talking about this as a renovation and an expansion. But for a lot of visitors, this is going to feel like a, a completely brand new museum, isn't it? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, while it is a renovation and an expansion, it's also a reimagining of what the museum is and what the museum could be for the region. Well, the building is now four times bigger than it was. So in terms of what it is and what it can be, uh, what does that allow you to do that you couldn't do before? I mean, first, on the practical side, it allows us to welcome so many more visitors. Um, We can welcome more student groups, more adult groups, um, and, of course, more walk-ins on the weekends, which is fantastic. Um, So physically, it allows us to accept more individuals, but it also really allows us to expand our message. Um, We have uh, renovated our permanent Holocaust exhibition, but we've also added things onto the building, um, such as our impact lab, which is where we take the lessons of the Holocaust and bring them to today as well as our auditorium for public events, our special exhibitions room, and our state-of-the-art archive. Um, So we've really become um, a really incredible facility. Well, offhand, I I can't think of a lot of museums dedicated to a specific historical episode, right? Depending on how you count, there's about 15 to 25 Holocaust museums in the U.S., Uh, so so why do we need places like this, like the St. Louis Kaplan-Feldman Holocaust Museum? You know, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, people sometimes say, you know, why build a Holocaust museum um, or why build it here? And the reason is, you know, the Holocaust, it's a very specific moment in history, but it has lessons that are universal. Um, while the Holocaust is a Jewish-centric story, it's not a Jewish solo story. There are so many um, other components to it, other voices um, embedded in it, and it really is a history that we all can learn from. Who is your typical visitor? Good question. Um, At the moment, we've been open to the public, um, and so we have met some extraordinary folks from across the region, some driving quite a distance to be with us on opening weekend. Um, But I think that primarily we'll be really looking to reach out um, to school groups um, so that we get students through the door um, to really help them in their education, really 6th through 12th grade. Okay. Well, maybe this answer changes depending on the demographic, but what Mm -hmm. sort of understanding of the Holocaust do people typically bring with them in the front door there? And that's another great question. You know, some folks are um, deeply invested. They know a lot about the Holocaust. They are um, what we call deep divers in the museum world. They want to read every word in the exhibition. Um, and then some folks are really just curious. Um, they're not sure what the Holocaust was, or they know a little bit and they want to learn more. Um, and then, of course, we have our school groups who, for some of them, this is their first encounter. Um, so we really have to be prepared for every visitor and to meet them where they are when they come through our doors. Yeah. Well, this history is some pretty grim stuff. 
I imagine you don't want to downplay any of any of the horrors, but you also want to keep your visitors from, I don't know, just shutting down because it can be too much sometimes. Mm -hmm. right? How do you find the, the balance there? Certainly, and it is a difficult balancing act. You know, we never want to shy away from the reality, but at the same time, we want to encourage visitors, um, both uh, you know, young and older, to engage with us. Um, so, what we, what we decided to do is um, to present the history of the Holocaust, you know, accurately and, and truthfully throughout the exhibition. But images that we deemed as graphic, mainly being those that contained, um, you know, multiple bodies or nudity um, or close-ups of deceased persons' faces. We decided to put those either in interactives where folks would choose to interact with them or to put them in drawers where folks are warned that it's graphic imagery and they can engage. And this way when we're with our older groups, um, we can say, you know, let, you know, let's gather around. We're going to look at a difficult image and prepare them and engage together. But if we're with younger groups or groups, let's say survivors who come through, um, and for them to look at these images is really difficult and disturbing, um, we can either, you know, verbally tell them what's going on um, or we can gently move them through to make sure that everybody's able to to engage in what feels safe and secure to them. And people have different preferences when they go to museums. Some people like to sign up for that tour and, and go around with the tour guide, read every wall panel. And, and mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who I go into an art museum and I read that panel right away, maybe before I look at the art. I like the context. Uh, it sounds like at the Holocaust Museum, it's particularly important to maybe be in touch with a staff member or just have some sort of guidance. Dev, I would really strongly suggest it. Um, so you can either book a guided tour and be a school group or just a family group or a group of friends. Um, or you can, um, we always have gallery attendants throughout the exhibition. So you're never in there alone and they've, gone un they've undergone some wonderful training so that they can really help you and support you as you engage in this history. Well, as folks walk through the new exhibitions, um, are those artifacts from your collection? Yes, a lot of them are. Um, a few are on loan, um, but the bulk are from our collection. Um, and that really ties into our narrative as a museum. We are a St. Louis survivor-focused museum. So we're telling the stories of St. Louis survivors through their voices, their photographs, and their belongings. Let's talk about that piece. How does St. Louis factor into the story you're telling here? You know, I think it factors pretty strongly. Um, number one, our survivors are from St. Louis. Um, so we're really highlighting local folks and, and really, I think, showing the strong community that was built here post-Holocaust. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're tying into the regional context. You know, when we, when we talk about things, we're using local newspaper clippings. We're using images of Forest Park. Um, we're making sure that we tie this global history into our local history. And I think that just makes a deeper connection, particularly for folks either living or visiting St. Louis. Did um, many Holocaust survivors relocate here? They did a surprising amount. You know, when we started the project, uh, we estimated about 300. Um, but now we're up to over 800 names. Oh, wow. And we imagine that with uh, fantastic publicity such as this, um, we know that folks will reach out to us and let us know that their parents or grandparents settled in St. Louis um, and they would like to add their names to our collection. So we're, we're ready for, for more folks to self-identify. So even just identifying the number of Holocaust survivors in St. Louis and those families, that's historical detective work you have to do to just find out. Definitely, and that was mainly done by our archivist, uh, Diane Everman, and our associate curator, Jillian Howell. Um, they worked tirelessly to make sure we had um, as many names as possible for opening day, and they are ready to accept more names whenever we can. Early this year, Sarah Fensky sat down with the, the St. Louis-based poet Jason Sommer to talk about his book, Shmuel's Bridge, and mm -hmm. uh, Jason wrote that about his family's experience in Auschwitz, the death camp. He talked with Sarah about what it's like being one generation removed from the Holocaust and the responsibility that comes to the next generations. 
I had felt all my life so much the recipient of these stories, and sometimes the recipient of the fallout from survivors who had tough lives and <clears throat> were damaged uh, badly sometimes. And, and it was a way of being a, an adult for me to take some agency, to do the research. I think I, the, my bookishness of use, you know? Yeah. And, and um, uh, I was then able to, to feel like I was participating in some way, joining the story at the end. Um, I'd often felt that I was the end of the story. I was told in a way, you know, rather directly that your compensation in some sense, everything was taken away from us. This is what we get, children. Yeah. And Helen, what do, you, what do you make of that? Does any of that sound familiar from talking to families of Holocaust survivors? It does sound familiar. Um, I've had the privilege of working with large numbers of um, descendants of Holocaust survivors. Um, and so much of what, what the, the author says rings very true. Um, you know, these, and, and we, we seek as a museum to really show the full experience of survivorship. Um, I think, you know, sometimes there can be a danger and a, and a disconnect when we make Holocaust survivors, you know, people who are you know, on a pedestal and, and these incredible heroes, um, not to take anything from them or their story. They are exceptional human beings, but they're also full human beings who suffered from tremendous PTSD with very little resources. Um, and we really want to highlight that they were full human beings. Well, it was it was St. Louis Holocaust survivors who founded the museum back in 1995 uh, when it was it was a department within the Jewish Federation. Since since then, many Holocaust survivors have died, and the history may seem more remote, especially to, to younger people today. In terms of just the job that a good Holocaust museum has to do, has your view of that changed over the decades? Do you, is the mission any different now than it was in 1995? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, the mission, I wouldn't say, is so different, right? The mission is to teach the history and the lessons of the Holocaust. Um, but I would definitely say the approach has definitely changed. I've been in Holocaust education now for, ooh, coming up on 13 years. Um, and I would say from when I started to where we are now, um, it's a very different space. Um, the Holocaust education that I'm familiar with used to lie very heavily on survivor testimony to tell the story. And while we, and that was live survivor testimony. And where we are now is more in recordings, in images, in artifacts, um, and the capturing of those stories, but being able to deliver them in very different ways. And while we do have a number of survivor speakers for the museum, we're also now relying on the second generation to speak about their parents' and grandparents' experiences. Um, so while the focus remains the same, I think the approach has certainly shifted. Do you tend to find that, that uh, people whose parents or grandparents or great-grandparents uh, either perished in the Holocaust or, or did survive, is that something families like to talk about amongst themselves, or is that just mm. too painful? That's an interesting question, you know, and I would say every family, every survivor, every family, every descendant um, is a unique individual trying to deal with this um, unimaginable trauma. Some families um, talk about it all the time. It's the focal point of their family. It becomes a driving force of their family. Um, but I know other folks who have no idea what happened to their parents or grandparents, um, that things were, were not shared. Um, and I can only imagine, you know, the depth of that pain. Um, so it really it does run across a complete spectrum of how much people know and engage um, versus how much they don't know and how much they do do not wish to engage at this time. Mm, and, and I do recall uh, from from the 90s and thereabouts the, the real influ uh, 
the importance in Jewish communities about listening to firsthand survivor stories and documenting that history, just running a tape recorder and letting people talk about what they saw and what they experienced. Has, uh, has your, the local museum here, have you participated in that at all? Oh, certainly. Um, so our oral history collection is actually um, a, a very well-documented um, and surprisingly old one. Um, it was started by um, Sister Prince, um, who's a local community member, um, back way before the museum opened in the 90s. Um, and she really was a pioneer of oral testimonies of, of Holocaust survivors. And she captured some really beautiful and very raw testimony um, of people being you know, much younger, um, and also before kind of, you know, the advent of Holocaust education. Um, so we have an extraordinary collection there. Um, and then many of our survivors have also participated in the Shoah Foundation project, um, creating Shoah tapes um, with, with volunteers, you know, namely Marcy Rosenberg. Um, so we, we have a beautiful collection of testimonies, um, and we're still collecting. Um, you know, we're, we're making sure that anybody with a story, we record, we photograph, we document. Um, the time most certainly is now. Yeah. Well, let's talk some more about what people are going to actually see and experience when they visit the museum. Um, these are exhibitions. Uh, many of the artifacts are coming from your archives, and I imagine mm-hmm. you have other stuff that you can't even get into the exhibitions, right? Yes, we have a massive archive, and, and the, the beauty and the pain of designing um, a whole, uh, an exhibition is what tells the story. Um, you might have something absolutely fascinating, but if it doesn't quite fit within the realm of the, the central narrative, um, then that's what we would say for a special exhibition, which we have many planned. What are, let's talk about some, some pieces people are going to come across that you think are particularly important to the collection. Is anything that comes to mind? Certainly, you know, the, there's always one piece that I always come back to, and, and that's a child's shoe. Um, it was donated to the museum by a Holocaust survivor, um, and it was found at one of the killing centers, so one of the previously known as death camps. Um, the shoe is very tiny. It fits in the palm of my hand. I have very small hands. Um, it's very light. Um, and because of the size of, where, uh, the size of it, where it was found, um, you know, in all likelihood we know that this young person did not survive. Um, and I always tell folks that no matter how much research I conduct or books I read or interviews I do, I will never know the name of that person. Um, and it's our job to tell that person's story. Um, and it, it gives me tremendous motivation um, whenever, you know, I, I falter in, in, you know, is this the right approach? What are we doing? You know, uh, who's listening? Um, it always gives me strength to know that we are speaking for that person. Do you often wonder who's listening? You know, I do. And, um, you know, I think Holocaust education, it really is for everybody. Everyone can find themselves in the story. Um, it's making sure that it feels accessible to everybody. Um, and that's a, a big um, push of mine to make sure that everyone can find themselves here. And in this story, it is about human beings. It's about a specific moment in history, but it relates to all of us. And thinking about that shoe, I know in the, in the U.S. Holocaust Museum uh, in Washington, D.C., one of the well-known features there is a, is a collection of hundreds, maybe thousands of shoes that uh, folks collected after liberating the camps after the war. And that has a certain power in just somehow it brings, it brings the humanity of it a little, more, a little more down to basics to see those shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum, that one shoe tells a similar story in a different way. And there's just something about maybe it's easier to make a personal connection with something as practical and simple as a child's shoe when you're talking about history that is so big and so scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think both both approaches are beautiful. 
um, and can be extremely powerful on different levels. Um, but certainly when I look at that child's shoe or, or any shoes, um, I always tell visitors to look down at their own feet. You know, what are, what are they wearing? What would their shoes say about them? Um, and I think it is, it, again, it's finding that thread in this massive history and making that connection. And we are speaking with Helen Turner, Education Director at the St. Louis Kaplan Feldman Holocaust Museum. The museum just reopened last week after a big two-year expansion renovation. How did opening go, Helen? Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, the kind of event the dreams are made of. I could not have been more proud of the museum team, of my colleagues, of my colleagues, of the community. Um, it was absolutely beautiful. I will never forget it. And are you seeing some some crowds in the the first days and the first weekend? We certainly are. We had a fantastic opening weekend. Um, We were very nice and busy. The feedback was beautiful. Um, And we cannot wait to welcome more folks through our doors. Hmm. Well, well, as you reopen those doors, uh, this is a time of rising anti-Semitism in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Just in recent weeks, we've seen the the musical artist formerly known as Kanye West make anti-Semitic comments. NBA star Kyrie Irving tweeted a link to an anti-Semitic film. Former President Donald Trump posted that American Jews need to, quote, get their act together and support Israel more, quote, before it is too late. When, when prominent people say anti-Semitic things online or in an interview, d- does that have an impact on what happens in the streets? Certainly. Um, and I think especially, you know, the folks that you've mentioned um, and others like them have extraordinarily large microphones with which, from which they speak. Um, and, you know, we see, we see the effects taking place. Um, and I think some of those can be quite physical. Some of those are verbal. Um, it's an uptick on things online. Um, and what I always caution people is that while, while some of these people have much larger microphones or platforms, um, they are not lone voices. Um, And we need to make sure that we call out anti-Semitism when it is on a big stage and when it's on a small stage in our schools, in our workplaces, um, in our friend groups, and to make sure that we we really um, sound the alarm of how dangerous this rhetoric can be and it does have true life uh, implications. Mm. And the Anti-Defamation League tracks anti-Semitic, what they call anti-Semitic incident in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's a range of things. It could be a a violent assault. It could be graffiti, uh, vandalism. Uh, they those those incidents had been decreasing for 15 years until 2016. Mm-hmm. Now they are increasing every year. They're at their highest level since the ADL started tracking in the 1970s. Uh, we talk a lot about white supremacist groups, and they have come out and and many have supported Donald Trump. They they like what they hear and they see from him and and talk about how they support him. Uh, do white supremacists target Jews as well? Uh, certainly, you know, sometimes a lot of those things are are connected together, um, and you, you certainly see anti-Semitism being tied to, to white supremacy. Um, but I think really it's, it's forms of extremism. Um, we're seeing a rise in extremism, um, and and I think with extremism comes blaming of different groups, um, and the, the Jews have been historically blamed, and anti-Semitism has very deep roots. It's often called the longest hatred. Um, and so it's really paying attention to those, um, you know, those key words, uh, key phrases, um, and how anti-Semitism is manipulated in the moment to serve whomever. Is some of what we're, we're hearing and seeing today, as you, oh, you start to mention it, there's some of these specific th- conspiracy theories and you know, lies about the Jewish people go back quite a ways, don't they? 
certainly, you know, especially conspiracy theories about, you know, um, world domination or control, things like that, um, those are very, very old tropes um, that, in my opinion, have absolutely no place in our current dialogue. Hmm. Well, how do you take a, a museum that's, uh, in essence, uh, or seems to be a history museum and, and respond to things like this, respond to today's environment? Yeah, you know, which is a great question. I mean, I think you know we are we are a history museum, um, but I, I firmly believe that museums need to be active spaces. Um, they cannot simply hold the past; they must speak to the present. Um, and so, it's really our job, number one, to call out um, anti-Semitism, but also bigotry, prejudice, hatred. Um, in all forms that we see it, but then also to help folks come up with action plans. Um, I'm a big believer that, you know, words are fantastic, but, but let me see your action. Um, and so we really want to stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are being affected. We want to raise our voice um, in community with others um, and to make sure that we respond in the moment. Um, you know, we don't want to just be a place where history is housed. Um, we want to be um, an inspiration for how history is made. Well, I think one of the things that makes uh, your facility stand out from other Holocaust museums is the new Impact Lab. What, mm -hmm. what happens in an Impact Lab? What's that? Certainly, the, the Impact Lab is an extraordinary space. Um, it's really where we take the lessons of the Holocaust and apply them to today. So, so many, you know, Holocaust museums, other museums say, you know, you've learned this, this very difficult history and now go forward and, and change the world. Um, and for, you know, a 13-year-old or myself, a 33-year-old, that's an extraordinarily hard message. Um, I don't know how to do that. And so the Impact Lab is really your practice space of how do you raise your voice? What does it look like um, to stand up and speak out? And how can we practice um, you know, some smaller scenarios and then some harder scenarios? Um, so for me, it's almost, you know, it's a gym, it's, it's a workout um, for how to respond in the face of hatred and bigotry. Well, let, let's talk about what actually happens in that room. So this is a, it's a timed, it's a 15-minute experience, right, for visitors. Um, what happens as they go through that space? Certainly. So it's a 50-minute experience, 5-0, um, and um, visitors are broken up into three groups. It's always a facilitated space with a, uh, an impact lab facilitator, someone who can help with the conversation. Um, and the three spaces, um, the first one is on hate crimes and genocide. Here we are asking our visitors simply to bear witness. Uh, we have seven genocides and have seven hate crimes, along with an introductory film. And folks are really just listening to those voices of other survivors and victims um, to place the Holocaust um, in a context and also to get really clear with what we mean about genocide and hate crimes. What are those things and how can we respond? Uh, the next section is called the spiral of hate. Um, and here's where we look at how we get to genocide. Uh, genocide rarely happens overnight. There are so many layers that go into it. You know, prejudice, violence, discrimination, um, you know, all different layers that build up to genocide. How do we identify those layers, looking at the Holocaust as a case study? And then how do we respond? Um, it's one thing to know and say, okay, this is how I see how genocide escalates. It's a whole other thing to say, how do we de-escalate? Um, and looking at individual actions when we see prejudice or bias, and looking at governmental actions when we're really looking at genocide. And then the final section um, is really more about, you know, your reactions, how you will um, handle things in the face of, you know, um, hearing a racial slur, hearing anti-Semitism, seeing discrimination. Um, we give folks a series of scenarios um, and you write down how you might respond. And we ask people to begin in reality. How would you really respond? 
Um, I'm a very shy person, so I tell people I'm not going to be the person that stands up and says, oh, you know, that word was, was deeply offensive to me, please don't say that word. Um, it's just not in my nature, especially if I'm in, um, let's say, a workplace environment or I'm trying to make new friends or something like that. So my real-world response is probably to look at my phone and kind of avoid. Hmm. Um, but I want to grow from that response. I want to do something differently. So how do I practice the language I want to say? What does it feel like to stand for a few minutes in a room and, and say it out loud and practice and practice? Um, and really, you're, you're growing those muscles so that when you are in that situation, you already you have some muscle memory. You know what to do, and you feel confident in your word choice. So this isn't about introducing a, a situation and, and instructing people in the one correct response you're supposed to do. It sounds like this is tailored to the individual. 100%. You know, we all respond differently. We're all in different bodies, um, having different experiences walking through the world, and we're perceived differently by different groups of folks. And so really making sure that, A, we're physically safe in the situation, and, B, what does that situation call for? Um, is it the kind of situation where you need things to kind of simmer down, and then you approach the victim and say, my goodness, I'm so sorry that happened to you. How can I help? Or is it the kind of situation where you're with a group of friends and you're like, hey, everybody, you know, I, I don't agree with that language. Please don't use that word around me. Um, so really making sure it's custom fit for you and it's it's realistic. There is no point in, in having um, grandiose expectations of ourselves and then feeling disappointed. Um, let's build on the reality. You know, we all have incredible strength and skills within us. Let's build on that. Uh, the impact, I, had, I haven't heard of something like this before. Is Do other Holocaust museums have spaces like this? You know, I think other Holocaust museums, they're exploring things like human rights. They're exploring, um, you know, how to be an upstander. But I've never seen anything like the Impact Lab. Um, I truly think it is an incredibly unique space. Um, and I'm so excited to see what our visitors make of it and also um, where it falls in Holocaust Museum trends and what other museums will do with it and, and where they'll take, hopefully, um, a good idea. And it sounds like this is not just exploring Jewish history. No, it's it's really exploring um, all different kinds of genocides and hate crimes, different forms of bias and prejudice. Um, and again, here's where every visitor can see themselves in these stories. Um, it's the story of us. It's of how human beings treat each other. Um, but it comes from a very brave space of let's explore together. Um, let's really look at our, our world and our society. And then how do we respond? What changes do we want to make? Mm. And you mentioned where you stand with other Holocaust museums. I imagine there's professional groups where you get together, you stay in touch. Is, is there a one particular trend that museums like yours are facing right now that, that you're trying to respond to or an innovation you're, you're aiming to make? Certainly, you know, there, there are definitely a lot of professional organizations out there for um, Holocaust professionals and museums. I'm very lucky that the museum, uh, the St. Louis Capital Feldman Holocaust Museum, is a member of the Association of Holocaust Organizations, which is a wonderful organization. Um, and we do get together and talk about what are the trends in Holocaust education, where are things going, what's effective, what's not so effective. Um, but you really do see this expansion of Holocaust education um, to make sure that we are carrying the lessons of the Holocaust forward um, and to make sure that we're doing it in dynamic ways that engage new students um, and new visitors in this profound message. Helen, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. 
St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.